0: I have to say it is good to be back in the pulpit. It's been a couple Sundays since I've been here, and uh, had many questions about Drew's grade on his sermon last week. Um, uh, he did he did well. I'll just I'll just leave it at that. Okay. I uh, appreciate y'all's concern for him and your support for him and love for him. Um, and I appreciate your concern and love for my family, and uh, the ability to go and uh, take the trip with Jonathan. I was able to to do, and just uh, just appreciate you all so very much. You know, uh, such a blessing to me, and family. Thank you for that. Um, turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're continuing our journey through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. We've looked at uh, several aspects of Paul's letter to this troubled church, a church that um, uh, is not all that you would necessarily expect a church to be. Uh, in many ways uh, we, we started by saying and sharing that that uh, when you talk about being a, wanting to be a New Testament church, Corinth is probably not the church you have in mind uh for that particular reality um, and and Paul's letter to uh, letters to corinth are are some of the more appointed of his letters uh probably only the letter to the church in, churches in Galatia in galatians is is more pointed, more direct more um, corrective let's say um and, and a, a large part of the field that we get from from Corinth is because the church has written paul letters asking him questions about what they're doing, what they're believing, what they're arguing and and where we are right now in the letter is um, is a debate that is broken out in the Church of Corinth between. What you'd call uh, the libertines—those who would believe that everything's lawful, we can do whatever we want in Christ. We're free, therefore we can go, we can do, we can be whoever we want to be. And we looked at that a couple weeks ago, there at the end of chapter six. But on the other side of this, you have uh, the group of uh, almost legalists—those who are saying, "No, we have to constrain ourselves. We have to limit ourselves. We have to uh, bind ourselves in and make sure that that we are." Uh, living the, the godly life as they would define it, as they would explain it, and and so you you, you see these these two debating sides coming out uh, back there in verse twelve. We noted everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. We noted that that's actually a quote from the church. That's not Paul's quote. That's something the church has sent. That's the libertines. That's the people who are who are saying that uh, everything is permissible, and and Paul saying yeah, but not everything is. Uh, beneficial, And then on the other side, you have the group today, uh, in verse 1 of chapter 7, is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. And, and what they're talking about there is basically uh, practicing abstinence as an expression of fidelity to Christ. And not just abstinence in the way we would generally use today, but abstinence completely, even for married couples and so forth. Um, denying of the body, denying of the pleasures, uh, for the purpose of demonstrating their own faithfulness, as it were. Now, as we look at these debates, we—I don't think most of us would participate in the debates the way they were—they were being expressed there. But I think we do have this struggle in our personal life. One of our, uh, one of my favorite passages—I'm sure it's very important to many of you as well—and many of you probably have it memorized, It's Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And when you read that passage, when you read that text, okay, I think most of us say that's the heart of what it means to be a Christian. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a believer. But how does that play out in the day-to-day life? What does that look like in terms of the decisions we make, in terms of the commitments we commit to? Because I I think if we broke into into groups and, and we started to discuss this, I think we'd have people on both sides. Some of us would be sitting there saying, man, that means I have freedom. I'm free and I live under grace and and I and I live to 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 express the joy and the encouragement and the happiness and all those things that I have in Christ. And, and man I'm just free. I'm not constrained by the things of this world. I'm not constrained by the law. I live under grace those sorts of things. And others would say, "Man, that means I I gotta, I got to live just just the right way. I got I got to reveal to people what a good person looks like. I got to reveal to to people what it means to be a believer, how I'm different from the world. But that's what it means to live as Christ. I need to deny the things of this world and and just do the things that God has told me to do. And, and if we took those two sides, both of us would have biblical support for, for our viewpoints. Both of us would have a, a case to be made based upon on what we see here. And I think perhaps. If we're being honest, it probably depends on where the issue is as is to where we fall on that particular matter. Okay? Um, you know, um, when I was in college, um, I, I remember talking to my roommate about his parents who had gone to that same college many, many years before. And when they were there at that college, and I think I've shared this before, when they were there at that college, Wayland Baptist College at that point, um, they had it, they had a student who was kicked out of the college for playing solitaire. Not poker, not you know, not, not gambling, not anything. She was just playing solitaire, but that was considered playing cards, and that was therefore considered outside the ethical boundaries of the school. And so she was kicked out for that. Okay. Now I think most of us would sit there, and I'm just looking around the room, most of us would sit there and say, Man, that's legalism to the extreme. That's that's well beyond anything that you know is appropriate or right or whatever. Okay, but what was the school trying to do? They were trying to say, "What we live for Christ. We've died to ourselves. Therefore, the worldly things we've done away with." Okay. Now, I'm, again, I'm sure most of you would not have any trouble playing solitaire. Probably some of you are playing it while I'm preaching. For being honest, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, um, <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> sometimes I get a little too honest. Um, but um, <laughs> anyway, um, and, and we we hear the examples like that, and we're like, oh man, that's over the over the top, you know. You know, when when I was at Wayland, the big thing was dancing. Okay, we we were not allowed to have dances on campus. Okay, so we rented out the Elks Lodge and other things like that. And we didn't have dances. We had foot functions. Now, I don't know how that made it right. I don't know how changing of the name made it more appropriate or whatever, but that was the reality. And again, most of us today would say, dancing, really? That's that's where we want to go the line in terms of who we are for Christ? But some of you may be on the side saying, yeah, man, dancing leads to all sorts of issues. I, I've seen it happen over and over again. Um, I, have a, I have a student that I've mentored at, at ETBU. They just got married recently, and they had a big conflict with their parents because they wanted to have dancing at their wedding, and their parents said, no, that's still wrong. Okay. Where do we draw the line as Christians in the decisions we make about what we're allowed to do or what we should, what we should avoid? How do we live a life that keeps this mindset in place while still kind of acknowledging, you know, the realities of of what we've been called to, how do we find that balance between freedom and obedience? And Paul deals with that issue from the second half of chapter six all the way through chapter eleven, and we're gonna we're gonna tackle that in more detail in the weeks ahead. But um, I want to look today at chapter seven in terms of just making decisions. And in order to do to, to follow through with his argument, because his argument is multi-layered here, I'm going to have to read the entire chapter to you. Okay, I don't want to uh, I don't want to omit any part of the chapter because it, it's all important to what he has to say. So I invite you, please, to follow along with me as we read First um, Corinthians chapter 7 in your own in your own text there, and and uh, then we're going to come back and we're going to draw some principles from it in terms of I believe what Paul would have us do in terms of how we make decisions. He says, Now, in response to the matters you wrote about it, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. And each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another except when you agree for a time to devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were as I am. But each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift. Another has that. I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, If any brother has an unbelieving wife, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it were, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or a sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. Let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. Was anyone already circumcised when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. Circumcision does not matter, and uncircumcision does not matter. Keeping God's command is what matters. Let each of you remain in the situation in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't let it concern you. But if you can become free, by all means take that opportunity. For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called as a freeman is Christ's slave. You were bought as a pri- at a price. Do not become slaves of people. Brothers and sisters, each person is to remain with God in the situation in which he was called. Now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one who, by Lord's mercy, is faithful. Because of the present distress, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The time is limited. So from now on, those of you who have wives should be as those they had none, and those who weep as though they do not weep, and those who rejoice as those who did not rejoice, those who who buy as though they did not own anything, and those who use the world use as though they did not make full use of it. For this world in its current form is passing away. I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried woman, or virgin, is conceived... Uh, excuse me, is concerned about the things of the Lord so that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I am saying this for you, your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. If any man thinks he is acting improperly toward the virgin he is engaged to, if she is getting beyond the usual age of marriage and he feels he should marry, uh, he can do what he wants. He is not sinning they can get married. But he who understands, or he who stands firm in his heart, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and has decided in his heart to keep her as his fiancé, will do well. So then he who marries his fiancé does well, but he who does not marry will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband is living, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to anyone she wants, only in the Lord. But if she's happier, if she remains as she is, in my opinion, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. All right. That's quite a mouthful. And and what Paul is doing here as he's he's speaking is, is again, he's dealing with the question in this particular instance of what do we do in regard to our married life? Paul, as did many of New Testament believers, he had an urgency, uh, an expectation, an understanding of Christ's return, as being imminent, as being something that was very soon. But not just Christ's return is what is behind Paul's words here. Part of what is behind Paul's words here is his expectation of growing persecution of the church. That as time progresses, as Rome gets more and more uh, opposed to Christianity, persecution is going to break out against the church. And Paul wants his believers, he wants the church here to be responsive and be able to to handle those sorts of circumstances. Now, we don't live in that situation. We live in a far different circumstance, a far different situation. But the question still remains, what kind of life are we to live? How are we to make decisions that best reflect Christ to the community, to the culture that because that is our purpose here. When we become believers, when when we become transformed by the Spirit of God, we become missionaries. We become intercessors. We become, as Peter calls us, a people of priesthood who are intervening, who are interceding in between the world and God, trying to proclaim to the world what it means to be. In relationship with God, and if that is our purpose, if that is our, our driving factor, then how do we make decisions that do that best? And here you had people in the church at Corinth who were saying, "Forget about marriage. Be done with it. it, it it's 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 about this world. It's about these things. It's about it's about our pleasure. It's about all those other things." And we need to do away with that. We need to get rid of that concept. We need to get rid of that, that practice. We need to get rid of that reality. And they have written to Paul saying, we're right, aren't we? We're the ones who are on the right side of this, right? We, we should be of this mindset because, Paul, you're single. And if you're single, then that represents to us that that's what we need to be as well, single. And so we're right. And Paul writes back to say, Not really. You're on the right track, but you've gone too far. But he doesn't want to render a decision for the church here, and you can get that feel from this chapter, hopefully, as we read it, that Paul, on the one hand, he seems to be saying something, and then the very next moment he seems to be saying almost the exact opposite. Okay, he's saying, I don't want you to get married, but go ahead and get married. You know I, you know don't do this but, but go ahead and do this and, and he goes back and forth why because Paul doesn't want to give them he doesn't want to be the determiner for the decisions in their life okay I think most of us have had those experiences whether it's our children our grandchildren people that we work with people that are just friends who they come to us for advice right hey, we, we've all been in that situation let, let me ask you your opinion on this you ever had a conversation to start with that? sentence. Okay. And, and there's a temptation whenever that happens, especially as a parent, that we want to give our kids the answer. This is what you should do. And, and if we go to the extent of saying that, then what? We kind of expect them to do what we just told them to do, right? I gave you my opinion, now do it, right? That's the, that's the struggle I have quite often. But in my experience as I've grown over the years as a parent and so forth, when I do that, my kids, if they, if they, a lot of times if I follow my advisor or do what I say to do in that situation, they're not fully sold out on that. And they continue to struggle. They continue to waffle. Did I make the right decision? I know that's what my dad said to do or I know that's what my friend said to do or, or whatever, but I'm really not sure it was right for and I think Paul's trying to avoid that. I think what Paul's trying to do here is he's trying to give the church some principles, some things to, to believe, some things to understand, so that when they make a decision, the decision is theirs under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And it's a decision they can stand with. Them. Because I think one of the things that, that Paul would, would highlight, and, and I think this plays out later on in the book especially, is consistency in who we are is a big part of the message of who Christ is. A person who's constantly waffling, constantly changing, constantly um, you know, altering their positions on things is not a person that's attractive in terms of the role of Christ in our life. Nobody wants to be a person who doesn't know what to do. Okay? We follow leaders who what? Who are decisive. Who, who know who they are and, and know what they expect and and, and are, are pushing that, that, those people are attractive. And if we're going to be believers that are attracting people to Christ, then part of who we need to be is consistent. The only way you can be consistent is if you make a decision based upon something that you firmly believe. Decisions grow out of truths that we are sold out to. Good decisions grow out of truths that we're sold out to. Long lasting decisions grow out of truths that we're sold out to. So, Paul is going to present several truths here in this text. We want to visit those to to hopefully gain some understanding of of some priorities that we should have that will help define the decisions we make and help decide the decisions. The first thing I think we see here uh, as kind of a driving uh, belief, a, a driving truth that we need to be sold out to is that the eternal outweighs the temporal, but the temporal is not necessarily opposed to the eternal. I think when you when you look at, at what Paul has to say here, he he makes it quite clear that the eternal outweighs the temporal, the things that are of God things that God has given us the things that God is doing with us the things that God ultimately wants to to, to carry out with us is is if that's what's ultimately the most important that's why he talks about all the time here where he says he says the person who who gets married does good the person who stays single for the cause of the ministry does better okay he's saying what he's saying. The sake of the ministry and the spreading of the gospel, the spreading of the word and so forth, that's an eternal issue. So that's priority. That comes first. That is uh the, the the priority. But, and this is important, this is important to the to the ascetics that he's talking to, the, the people who are saying we need to 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 just kind of punish ourselves and do away with the good things of life. He wants us to understand that the temporal things that God has given us are not in opposition necessarily to the eternal. They're they're not competing factors. They they can be if we let them be, but they don't have to be. And and he he plays that out several ways here. For instance, he points out that our physical drives and needs are appropriate, but we can't become slaves to them. There in verses 1 and 2, when he talks about this issue of, of being married, again, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. That's a quotation from the church in Corinth. That's something they're advocating. And, and it's their slogan. And, and Paul agrees with it, but only to a point. Only to a certain extent. And he says what? He says, in order to prevent pornea, pornography, we looked at that word uh, a couple of weeks ago, fornication is how it's often rendered sexual immorality is i believe how my translation renders it the man and wife should have regular relations with each other he says um it it, it is a these are these are things that god has given us but we can't become slaves to them and that's the, that's the thing about pleasure whatever pleasure we're talking about God gave us those things for a reason. To bring joy to our life. The children's minister at the church that uh, I was at previous to here, one of her favorite things to, to point out was that she just thinks God every day for taste buds. Okay. Because you think about it, he didn't have to give us taste buds. Okay, we need to eat to survive, so we're going to eat regardless. But he gave us. Taste buds. So the what? So we can enjoy the things we consume. That's good. That's God's goodness. He gives us these pleasures. He gives us these joys. He gives us these, these things in our life that are good. But too often we take those to the extent of an unhealthy direction. And just going with the, with the taste buds imagery. Okay? I like chocolate. Chocolate's good. There are lots of foods I like. You know what I don't like? I don't like Brussels sprouts. I'm not real crazy about most vegetables, if we're going to be honest. Why? Because they don't please my taste buds. They don't taste good. So this good thing that God has given me to bring pleasure, if I allow it to be what controls me and I allow it to be what drives me, then what? I'm going to avoid things that are also good. for me. There's a balance to be found. We can take pleasure in the things that God's given us without letting them control us. To that end, we recognize that pleasure is a gift from God. It's, it's not a curse. Uh, I deal with students all the time. Who, who deal with, with sexual temptations. It, it, it's, it's a reality. It's, it's, and sometimes I, as I deal with them and, and we talk about things, they express almost that it's a curse. Why do I feel these things? Why am I driven in this way? Why, why is this such a priority to me? Why is this always on my mind? And, and we get to the place to where we sometimes um, start denigrating the good things God has given us. And, and we found over the years that, that because of that, that, that can mess up when things start to happen that, that should happen. Sometimes married couples struggle, especially Christian married couples struggle, because uh, usually true of the woman, but sometimes of the man as well. They've been told their whole life that sex is wrong, sex is wrong, sex is wrong, sex is wrong. wrong. That when they finally get into the marriage situation where it's proper and where it's appropriate and where it's supposed to be expressed, that they can't enjoy it. Because it's been ingrained in their head for so long that it's bad, that it's wrong. They don't know how to see it any other way. We need to recognize that, that the pleasures that God gives us, whatever they may be, They're a gift from God. They're good. They're even better when we handle them correctly. When we express them the way he has communicated to us that we're to express them. It's not a punishment that we're trying to to do. We're not trying to punish ourselves in living for Christ. We're trying to express ourselves in a way. Paul also highlights that even as we recognize our temporal responsibilities, we keep the eternal first. In verses 29 through 35, he, he highlights that even those who uh, pursue marriage, even those who who uh, find themselves in, in, in this sort of uh, commitment, they need to keep the eternal first. And then in 36 through 38, he tells us that it is no sin to pursue the things, that God has given us. As long as we do those within the boundaries of what he has expressed them, there's no sin. And so when we're making those decisions, when, when, we're, when we're looking at our world and we're trying to decide, how do I express Christ? How do I live as Christ? We do so with the mindset that i got to keep the eternal first. I got to keep that primary. I got to keep that as the priority. But that doesn't mean that the temporal things of this world, the, the temporal joys, the, the pleasures, the 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 commitments and so forth are things that that I have to do away with. Early in Christianity, the history of Christianity, we had monasticism grow. A great Bounds, people doing all sorts of things to deny themselves. And the stylites who would go and and they'd live on top of pillars for days. They were pillar sitters, that's what they'd do. They'd climb up on the top of these pillars and they'd have people who would, they'd, they'd pull up food and other things and stuff, to, but that's where they'd live. You had other people who went and lived in caves for years and years. And their their mindset and their perspective was, I need to deny myself in order to Christ. I think this chapter speaks against that. That that this that sort of over over response to uh, this call for obedience is ultimately unhealthy to the message of Christ and unhealthy to who we are as believers. The second principle, I think Paul gives us the second truth, is we can't ignore God's laws in order to institute man's laws. Paul's advice here submits first to Jesus' commands. Notice the times where he says, "This is a command not from from me, but from the Lord," and vice versa. No, this is not a command from the Lord. This is from me. Now, why is he saying that? Is he somehow saying, what I'm saying here is just my opinion and therefore not authoritative? No, Paul expected the church to respond to his teachings. Paul expected them to understand that what he says here is, in fact, authoritative. All he is saying in that particular instance, however, is Jesus didn't speak on this issue. Jesus didn't give us any kind of instruction on this particular issue. So I'm going to take what Jesus has expressed and I'm going to apply it, and he's doing so what? As he says at the end, as guided by the Spirit, do that. So his words are authoritative. And again, this goes back to the question that we raised uh, a couple weeks ago uh, <clears throat> when we were in chapter six, and we were talking about the the sexual immorality and and the the same sex relations and all those other things that that Paul seems to address there. And we talked about how people have what what I call red-letter disease. Remember that? That if somehow, if it's in the red letters, that it's more important or more real or more applicable than if it's in the black letters. Paul's comments here is not confirming that kind of mentality. Paul's comments here are, in fact, undermining it because he's saying, I am speaking as an apostle. I'm speaking as one guided by the Holy Spirit. I am speaking as one with authority. Even though Jesus did not speak on this issue, I know him. And it is therefore authoritative because Christ, through the Spirit, speaks through me. But he always starts with Christ's clear teaching first. That's always his default. And so we understand that what God has been clear on we Need to be clear on as well. Notice he, he talks about divorce and he, he talks about um, uh, being married here. Verse 39 says, A wife is bound as long as her husband is living, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to anyone she wants. What? Only in the Lord. Which is a way of saying what? If they're a believer. If they're a believer. Paul's expectation here is that we marry fellow believers. And you say, well, Pastor, you got this whole section here of being married to a non believer and all that. Remember when Paul is writing this, he's writing to a congregation, most of whom are new, all of whom are new to Christianity. We know they're new to Christianity because Christianity itself is new. Okay? And so his instructions here about being married to unbelievers and all that. He's not talking about missionary marriage or missionary dating. In other words, he's not talking about go find yourself a non-believer so you can see them to Christ. He's saying those of you who were married, you came to Christ, but your partner didn't, this is my instruction to you. This is after the fact. You need to keep that in mind. The, The the biblical mandates of, of marriage and who we marry and who we don't marry are very clear, and we need to be submissive to those. The third principle that Paul outlines here is, that is, is our connection to God, not our outward circumstances that determine our place. In verses 17 through 24, he talks about how people came into Christianity. What were you like when you came? And he says, don't, don't, don't strive to change that because that's ultimately not what defines your place in Christ. Live in the world that you were when God called. Live in that circumstance. Live in that, that reality, but live, do so now as a believer. Again, here's the thing. A lot of times, when people become Christians, especially if they become Christians later in life, they think that that somehow that means that they need to change their job and so forth. And sometimes it does, but I've seen a lot of people, a lot of pastors, to be quite honest, who they came to Christ late in life, they don't really spend any time growing or learning or or studying the Word, or anything like that, and they say, well, because I'm now a Christian, because I have this testimony of conversion, that means I must be a preacher. And in my experience, more often than not, those type of people do more damage than they do. good, Because they're not being tested. They're not growing in their faith. They're not studying the Word. They're not getting to a place to where they can teach it accurately. They think simply because I have this testimony, that means I need to be a preacher. No, take that testimony you have, that conversion you have, into the workplace you've always been in, in the circumstances you've always found yourself in, and share Christ there. Christ called you where you're at for a reason. Now, can God call someone later in life to ministry and so forth? Absolutely. I'm not saying that that's not possible. I'm saying that, that too often we... We couch our decision, our relationship to God in terms of our outward circumstances. God would have us understand that no, it's our relationship to him that matters and our outward circumstances are very often the the very things he wants to keep where they're at so that the gospel can spread. We need to be people who are taking our testimonies of conversion and change and transformation into the very situations that we were in before our conversion. Too many times we think this is where the gospel is most adequately and appropriately shared. That's not the biblical mindset. The biblical mindset is the gospel's most adequately shared out there. This is a time of equipping. This is a time of encouragement. This is a time of learning and growth. The gospel it's for the places where the gospel's not heard. We need to keep that mindset. We need to keep that perspective. And so as we're making decisions, do I do this or, or do I not do this? We ask the simple question. Is it my relationship with God that's driving my decision? Is it something He has told me or is it more a matter of I think my outward circumstances need to change simply because of this decision. The fourth principle is that, of course, the gospel is the priority. Verse 26, Paul highlights and emphasizes. this. Because of the present distress, I think that it is good for a man for a man to remain as he is, because the gospel needs to be spread, because the gospel needs to be heard, because the persecution is coming because of the, the hardships that we're facing. The gospel has to take sharing that is essential. And then, lastly, keep it simple. In verse twenty-eight, Paul talks about how too often in life we start building all these things. In this case, he's mentioning marriage, and, and, and we're bringing in all these things that are vying for our attention, vying for our resources, vying for our time. Paul's saying, keep it simple. Several years ago, uh, a man named David Platt wrote a book called Radical. And and the premise of his book was simply this. Christians too often, especially in America, are investing in and spending more Time on things that they really ultimately don't need, that then leads to um, them not being able to minister the way they're supposed to. So, for instance, the example that he gives, the one that he kind of focused on, the one that got all the attention, was how big is the house you? Live? How big's your mortgage? Is your mortgage of such a stat status and such a such a uh, weight on you? that you can't give to the causes of Christ around the world? That if a missionary comes and shares in front of your church and says, we need money for this or we need resources for this, are you able to give to that? Or are your goods and your resources so tied up in the house that you in that you can't? You want to, but you just can't. So his advice in this book was simple. Downsize. Keep it simple. Keep things where you have this uh, money that you can spend on other things, that you can give to God's causes. And that's essentially what Paul's saying here when he's talking about this this whole issue of Mary. So often we get our lives so crowded with so many things. We don't have time for the things of God. We don't have energy for the things of God. We don't have resources for the things of God. So as we're making decisions, these truths are are what drives us. These truths should be what what motivates our our action, highlighting the eternal. Recognizing where God has spoken, we respond. Emphasizing our relationship with God. The better we know God, the better decisions we're going to make for him. Always emphasizing the gospel, good news that Christ saved keeping it simple so that we can do the things that God's called us to on the spur of the moment. Ultimately, what all of this boils down to is what? I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. All of these things are expressions of that truth. I'm going to do the things that Christ has prioritized. To make the decision of how that plays out in our life, Simply apply these principles. Ask ourselves, is the gospel further? Ask ourselves, am I I making myself more busy than I need to be? Am I expending my resources more than I need to? Am I highlighting the eternal? Am I sharing the gospel? These are the truths that need to drive us and help us make the decisions that God's called us to make. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. God, I pray this morning as uh, we've looked at this passage that is uh, so full of wisdom and guidance, Lord, I pray that you've been able to speak beyond my limitations to, to, to touch hearts and minds here, Lord. Help us to be driven by foundational truths about who you are and who we are, to make decisions that are healthy, to make decisions that are appropriate, to make decisions that reveal you to the world around us, God, we're thankful to you for your goodness, and God, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who does not have a relationship with you, that you would draw them and that they would begin that journey of discovering who you made them to be, discovering who you are, and, and living a life that reflects that. We praise you, Lord. We thank you, Christ. Amen.